Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is the talent behind the show, my loyal co-host, Mike Walker. How are you doing, Walker? I told you, I'm just the eye candy, Mark. Well, in, in the context of this podcast, that makes you the talent. Well, there you go. Better to be Cupid stupid than just stupid. This is, I've heard this many times for some reason. On the topic of our being wrong and not particularly intelligent, we would off- like to offer our sincere congratulations to our victors, uh, the people who bested us in the Golden Geek Award for Best Podcast, specifically Ludology. Congratulations to them. I believe now we must defer to all their opinions and have all their reviews overwrite all of ours. So we're waiting back from Jeff Engelstein on that one. He's been a little slow to respond, but, you know, that's his privilege as the, as the victor, why Wickness and all that. It's true. He's on the victory lap, right? So we got to give him time to finish that off. Exactly. Oh, that and he has never heard of us. That's probably also true. Also, congratulations to the runners-up, Heavy Cardboard and Blue Peg Pink Peg. Congratulations all around. It was an honor to be nominated. We mean that sincerely. Exactly. To be the top 10 board gaming podcast in the world, that is actually a fantastic feeling. Well, <laughs> top 10 who were nominated through Board Game Geek users and who had not won in prior years. Hey, this, is, this, is the, this is the bar. That is, <laughs> sure, sure. That is Board Game Podcasts. No, no, no. I, look, right? look, I, I was very pleased to be nominated. I just don't think that saying that we're in the top 10 of the world is, is necessarily ah. accurate because we're the best in the world. We didn't oh, win the award, but we can still be the best. Wow. Anyway. So we're going to be talking about board games this week in, in contradiction to last week's. Maybe we would have won the award if we talked about board games on the regular. So that's why we're going to mix up the format this week and talk about board games. Board games. Maybe we should just talk about uh, the architect of the West Kingdom and how fantastic it is. It's my favorite game and I love it so much. No, no, no. We're going to sell out love in other ways, Walker. Love me. Love me. It's too late. It's too late. Oh, we can't. Damn it. <laughs> Next year, when the award season's ramping up, we can find out whatever's been nominated for everything and talk about how we, we absolutely love it uncritically. Sure, I'll have to, have to apologize for my very white voice today. I'm a little, little under the weather. Anyhow, we're going to talk about board games this week, very white or no. We're going to talk about our Eurus, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment. We're going to talk about games we played last week, the news and why it doesn't matter. Our feature game this week, which is Catacombs 3rd Edition. And our topic this week is mastering a game, specifically the issue of whether or not it is a good idea for a group to return to the same game over and over again with the uh, with an eye towards mastering it or developing some sort of proficiency in a specific game. This is a topic of some interest to Walker. We'll see what comes out of it. I didn't mean in distinction to me. I just I'm, just, I'm just looking up and I'm seeing the bottom of a bus. I didn't know how I got under here. So our Aurus is Space Alert. Walker, have you played Space Alert since we reviewed it? I haven't. But it, it still doesn't take away anything that I feel about Space Alert. It is definitely a event game. It's something that you plan ahead for. It's like something that, you know, you get everyone together to, you put out the call. Guess what? We're playing Space Alert tonight. Everyone shows up and it's a great time. But we have not done that lately. I've played it a couple times since we reviewed it. I think, it, so it's it's 10 years old and I still think it feels very different from a lot of other co-ops. Every Practically every game is a co-op now. But Space Alert still feels like its own unique thing. Programming of actions is not a very popular genre. There's only a couple of very small touchstones in it. And that's one of the things that helps get Space Alert to the table, its sense of uniqueness. Also, the fact that it does campaigns really, really well in a very light, paperwork, minimal way. I know you don't have much experience with the expansion, which is a shame. And I still think it's really well situated in the genre of co-ops. It's a little bit of a bear to teach, which, yes, makes it a bit of an event thing, absolutely. And it's got one of the best rule books of all time. It does have an absolutely great rulebook, and as I always say, it's okay for you to have multiple rulebooks so long as at least one of them is comprehensive. And the comprehensive rulebook is absolutely a marvel of simplicity and ease of reference, so yes, I I agree. The rulebooks are great. One of them is hilarious, and the other one is still useful after you've read the, the hilarious one. 
So let's talk about games we played last week. I got Warpgate to the table. I've been waiting on Warpgate for quite some time. Warpgate is the second published design by Artem Nichiporov of Wolf Designer. He designed Guards of Atlantis, which was released in 2017, which is still my favorite MOBA game and probably still one of my favorite large player count stra- strategy games. You know, if you've got eight people together and don't want to play code names and want to play something crunchy, Guards of Atlantis is probably your, your go-to best bet. Warpgate is Artem Nichiporov's version of a sort of a light 4X game without necessarily all the X's, but it's got a lot of the other trappings. You know, you you go around, you control systems, you build spaceships, you get techs, and you engage in conflict with other players. I had some difficulty getting it to the table for the first time because of our editorial standards. I had to have someone else teach me the game because I was initially taught the game by the designer over Tabletopia when we were doing prototype testing. So I was one of the playtesters and I was taught by the designer and we don't review games, we don't talk about them on the podcast unless we experience them as you, a listener, might in those contexts. So given that there was a retail product, I wanted to review it as a retail product, and so that's why it took a while. Anyhow, I really like Warpgate. It's quick, it's visceral, it really gets you in the thick of things immediately. It's got a relatively interesting activation system, and it's really changed a lot since I first played it. It's got lots of cool little faction asymmetries, lots more toys. The techs have gotten very, very interesting. We're going to have more to say about it later, probably. I'm going to I'm going to make sure Walker gets to play it, because it's an interesting design, and there's lots more to say. It has a, a lot of different ways to get points in a very, very good and clean way. There's some still lingering uncertainties we have with respect to the, the objective cards. Some of them seem a little wonky, especially in combination with some text, but maybe that'll get smoothed out. But it's a very, very approachable and quick space game. Somewhere between Quantum, which is incredibly stripped down, but still enjoyable, and, you know, Eclipse or or actual 4X games like that. I really like space games. Sci-fi is definitely my genre of choice when it comes to genres like this, and I think that Warpgate does a very, very good job of doing it justice. And it's been winning a lot of friends. The people I've been playing it with since the retail copy came out have all really enjoyed it. It's an odd beast. It doesn't feel like a lot of other things, and so for that alone... Warpgate is worth a look, but definitely more to follow. These are just the preliminary impressions of the uh, retail edition, and that is Warpgate. I did something I haven't never done. We played Caverna twice in the same year. Never mind, <laughs> never mind. You know, like in the same five year span. We someone asked to play Caverna, and I had just been brushed up on the rules, so I said no problem. Brought it to game night, and good times were had by all. The new expansion uh, is fantastic. It really lets you uh, change how you play. Like, you can, like, totally disregard the, the gardens if you want or discard the mine, depending on what race you get. It really gives you new avenues to try and new buildings to get victory points. I really enjoy the expansion, and I wouldn't play it any other way. Upon reflection, I'm actually interested in trying it with the expansion because one of my criticisms of Caverna when compared to, say, Agricola was the sort of overarching savingness of it because the same buildings are out every time. Now, I, I don't like it when all the decisions are front-loaded the way that Caverna still does, but... You know, a little bit of variety never hurts anyone, and, and I do tend to like how Uwe Rosenberg iterates on a design, and insofar as Caverna is very much an iteration on Agricola, and his expansion is an iteration on that, I'd like to see where it goes. But suffice to say, I'm not, I'm not rushing out to do it, especially since, as I say, I prefer Agricola, and we've been playing a lot of A Feast for Odin lately, which is probably my Rosenberg of choice of late. No doubt. Yes, but I'm... I'm it's nice to see him returning back to, by his standards, his older designs. Usually he comes out with an idea and iterates it a couple times and then moves on. But Yeah, to see expansions come out so late, especially in the new genre of everyone wants to play the newest thing, it's surprising for sure. Absolutely. So that was Caverna, specifically the Forgotten Folk. I got to play a game of Codenames, and we talk about Codenames a lot. I just wanted to share one specific anecdote because it warms the cockles of my heart. 
we were playing a game and the opposing clue master gave the clue annoying too. And on the grid of words was Mark. So immediately I thought I was bracing myself for some kind of undeserved and unmerited slight. Completely undeserved Completely and unmerited. Undeserved. No one has ever thought me annoying, despite the fact that they all say that I'm annoying. This is an instance of false consciousness, exactly. which itself is annoying. It's just funny. No one would actually put it into a game, you know, context, of course. right? And, and make it, you know, obvious like that. That would be awful. Vindication. Some ne'er-do-well on the other team selected my name as a response to annoying. It was the assassin word. And then the clue master said, in the throes of his defeat, he looked over at me and he said, Mark, I never even considered that as a possible connection with annoying. I don't know why anyone could think that I'm annoying. That was a great moment in Codenames. Lots of laughs were had by all, mostly at my expense. And I just really like, again, we, we return to this issue again and again. We, we don't always want chucks and giggles from all, all of our games, but Codenames definitely has the potential to deliver it in spades. The upshot of this, again, once once more, is that Codenames is amazing, and so am I. Cough. I got to play Keyforge again. Surprise, surprise. And it really brought out the fact that lots more can be done with card games, and Richard Garfield once again has developed this game into something that's completely different than anything else that's out there. You know, choosing your faction and only being able to play cards of that faction, and the fact that you know, the way they interact with each other and the fact that every deck has its own little unique mechanism and it does something completely different than every other deck is is crazy and amazing. And we played about three or four games in a row and we had a great time. That's Keyforge. I get to play Intrigue. Intrigue is about a 25-year-old game by Stefan Dora, Stefan Dora, who designed For Sale. Intrigue had been described to me over the years as sort of a pure negotiation game where everyone hates each other by the end of the game. The fact that we played this just before the game of Codenames where I was deemed annoying is entirely irrelevant, I'm sure. Different players. So what I found striking is, number one, that it was much less pure than it had been led, uh, I'd been led to believe. Not necessarily in a bad way, but there was a lot, of, a lot more moving parts. Not necessarily in terms of complexity, but just in terms of what was to be negotiated. Long story short... Intrigue is about placing your scholars in other people's houses and getting income. If they get refused, they get sent to, and I'm quoting here, the Island of Misfit Scholars, which is fabulous. That's a lovely little bit of theming. But what you can send where is a function of what type of scholar it is. And at the start of the game, you have two of each type of scholar. But once they're situated in other people's houses, that limits your ability to target other people specifically by virtue of the types that you have left. And this was an unanticipated element of early decisions having late game serious consequences. And not really in a way that I found satisfying. It was largely just accidental. You know, you'd look down and say, oh, I can't threaten that person there anymore because of a decision I made two turns ago entirely independently of the fact that this scholar happens to be in this position. So I wasn't a huge fan of that. And the uh, another thing which surprised me was that the structure of negotiation was very, very rigid, vaguely reminiscent of Respublica. A lot of people hate Respublica, but we don't. And it was very similar in the sense that, well, now I talk to you and you offer me money. Now I talk to you and you offer my money. And now I make my decision and things happen. What's lovely about this structure, though, is that people have to pay up front. If I'm negotiating with two people, A pays me in entirely before B makes their offer and then B pays me and then I decide one of them to, to, to screw over. And that part was cool. I really enjoy the negotiation, but when it comes to sort of Vicious negotiation games like this, I always look for the same thing. One of them is, how much liberty do I have to make clever deals? Not that I tend to make them, but I enjoy watching other people doing them, seriously. 
you know, some of the triangular trades that happen regularly in a game of sidereal confluence come to mind. The really impressive arrangement whereby you can find a way to eke out extra profit, sometimes at other people's expense. And the second thing that I look for is, does the game force you to be nasty in a pleasant way? And I like this for two reasons. Number one, I like it when a game forces you to be nasty like this because then it tends to blunt the degree of hard feelings. Once everyone internalizes that you're just going to have the knives out all the time, then everybody has more fun and doesn't feel guilty. And the second reason is games that want to be nasty when played straight are really boring. When people try to be nice, the game often suffers. I've, I've talked a lot about good critters in this context because someone really needs to give that initial push to nastiness. Intrigue does as well. There's an impulse to play nice. And you can do that with sort of reciprocal arrangements and everyone tries to honor them and no one looks, wants to look untrustworthy. And when the game is being played like that, it's not particularly engaging. So I went out of my way to do some, I don't know if they were gameplay suboptimal, but they were definitely evil for the sake of being evil just to see if I could nudge the game in that direction. And it seemed to have a salutary effect. Anyway, I found Intrigue pleasant, but for those two reasons, number one, the strange combinatorics that you end up with, and number two, the fact that you can play nice, and so some people will be tempted to do that. I don't know that I would necessarily regard it as top tier in the uh, space of, of vicious negotiation games. I still really like Door of the Lesser Houses, because you have to be nasty, and everyone knows that. It's a little bit more rules grit than I'd like, but I still think it really gets the, 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 the setting really well, and Good Critters is nice if, again, you give it that initial push towards nastiness, but I'd always wanted to go back to Entry because it's regarded as a classic. I can see why it's a classic. It's it's very clean for a negotiation game, especially for its uh, age. But those two little extra details, I, I think, will, will mean that I won't be necessarily going back to it right away. So that was my impression of Intrigue. Had a friend from out of town come visit back when I was uh, living in New England, so we played some of the games we always play together. We played a game of Combat Commander Europe. This is the GMT war game from 2006. It's a war game, but definitely not a concept, especially because we were playing our preferred way, which is with this random scenario generator. And what it spat out at us was uh, an elite detachment of German rifles taking on some green chasseurs from Yugoslavia. So the Germans, who outnumbered them uh, at least three to one and had better equipment, training, and morale, were sent to go take a hill, and they figured, no problem. And they encountered a whole bunch of undertrained, under-equipped uh, Yugoslavian forces who mysteriously were occupying a bunker complex complete with wire all over the place and really, really, really nasty minefields. Oh, the Germans also had artillery support, and the uh, Yugoslavians didn't. So it was very lopsided from that sense, but the problem is, and this actually highlights one of the ways in which Combat Commander is not particularly good, it's a little awkward in terms of how it models firepower. Fire attacks are a little bit strange, not in terms of execution, but just they don't seem to work the way you might expect them to in a, a war game of that scale and of that nature. It quickly became apparent that because my German troops were vastly superior and his Yugoslavian troops were dug in in bunkers, that fire attacks weren't going to get anywhere from anyone. You know, we tried a couple times, then, you know, we saw the math work its, work its way out and it just wasn't going wasn't gonna to work. So it was all melee all the time. Fix bayonets, run in, charge the complex. Uh, there was, it, it ended the way you might expect. The Germans won. They won handily. And it was, was kind of a foregone conclusion uh, in a variety of ways. But it was showing Combat Commander both at, at its best and at its worst. At its best, it just gives you a stunning variety of setups and scenarios. And it's very, very satisfying. At its, at its worst, as I said, the way it models firepower is not 
ideal. I still love it, though. I think, all told, Combat Commander is probably my favorite war game, even though it's not really much of a concept, and even though it can be very, very wild. But the narratives it generates are great. Lots of interesting things always happen. And the rule system is so clean and so good that even though, in this particular case, I hadn't played it in two years, we had to reference the rulebook once. Only for the purpose of elevation changes. And elevation changes all, always bedevil tactical games of that scale. And that really is a tribute to how good the system is. And I maintain that the Combat Commander Europe rulebook is the best rulebook ri- uh, yet written. I haven't seen one nearly as good as that. I absolutely adore Combat Commander. I'll play it at any given opportunity. But the problem is no one around here likes GMT games. So that's that. Also got to try Aristea again. Walker and I played Aristea a few months ago, but we didn't talk about it in the podcast because I think we just plain forgot, to be honest. Aristea is set in the Infinity Universe, and it bills itself as a sports game. It is a sports game in the same sense that, you know, Murder Ball or Death Race is a sport. Uh, it is. It, it claims to be vaguely MOBA-inspired, and that's kind of sort of true, but it's mostly about controlling zones and doing weird special attacks that move people around and and shove shove them about. It's got a number of interesting bits. The character differentiation is really cool and the different things that characters can do. The rulebook is atrocious. It's one of those learn-to-play style things, and so you don't know where the activation sequence is, is hidden anywhere. So returning back to it was not as easy as I would have liked. Again, I don't like split rulebooks, especially when neither of them is comprehensive, so please stop doing that, publishers. But I had a good time with it, and I'm probably going to order some of the expansion factions to get a little bit more of the character variety because a lot of them are good. One of the things I'm going to be talking about a little bit later when we talk about the news is one of Infinity's strengths is that it is a very cosmopolitan vision of the future. It's not just all white guys in the future. It represents a lot of different people and a lot of different backgrounds, and that's awfully neat. And Aristea is no exception. Do you you remember? I remember it. I think they call it MOBA because... You know, you guys teleport back in at full health and, you know, you just go right back and you keep, you know, going and going over and over again. So I think that's where it's getting its mobile roots from. And I remember it being great. You know, cards, easy to read, gives you that, you know, sense of urgency. And there's definitely tactics there about, you know, you can see which numbers are going to come up next and sort of try to position your guys to, you know, okay, well, I'm going to lose this point, but I can set myself up to, you know, score the next two, right? That's the part I liked about it. And in Aristea, one of the things that it has that I very much like in games of its ilk and in skirmish games, it's not really a skirmish game, but it's kind of skirmish adjacent, I guess, is that it has an excellent balance between maneuver and combat. You know, there's a number of different ways to determine... Uh, to influence who's going to control a zone. One of them is to just kill people so they can't get there, and the other is to maneuver yourself or them so they're not there. And most characters have a choice about how to to balance it. There's some exceptions. Most characters can do a a bit of both, and that's really cool. So I'd like to see what else the system has, and I'm a big fan of Infinity, and Aristea is very much in the same design tradition, even though the the mechanisms are, are not overlapping. So that was my second experience with Aristea. Finally, I'd like to talk about Pax Renaissance. Pax Renaissance is, I think, a game that I'm going to need to go back to again. I've played it now five times, and honestly, the first four times did not impress me too much. It struck me as kind of like all the other Pax games in that a little bit too much chrome for not enough effect. We talked about Pax Palmer a couple weeks ago. It's definitely less chaotic than Pax Palmer. Pax Palmer, you know, you you look at the victory conditions and figure, well, something is going to come up and maybe I'll be in contention, maybe it won't. Pax Renaissance, at least, 
if you internalize the victory conditions, you might have a better sense of what's going to happen. And that's the big if. And that, I think, was my big failing in teaching the game the past four times. This time, I really thought about how to teach the game well. And it's not an easy game to teach. But what I stressed at the beginning was, here are the ways that you win. Everything needs to be understood under the aegis of these four possible victory conditions and activating them in the way that you want. And if you do that, then the tableau building is more purposive and things start to take shape in a more textured way. And for the first time ever, I had what was sort of a dynamic cut and thrust and parry in a game of Pax Renaissance. The previous ones, we were just off doing our own thing and then suddenly won. Here we had a back and forth of of religious bands precluding an empire from doing anything and the Ottoman Empire conquering the Hungarians and then suddenly the Hungarians having an election and a whole bunch of really interesting stuff happening, which again, in, in previous games I didn't have. I made an editorial about Phil Eklund games in general and Pax Renaissance was included in that in an episode of All the Games You Like Are Bad for our Patreon backers and I stand by what I said. The, the thought process behind Pax Renaissance has some deeply problematic and borderline racist stuff going on. But as Cole Worley pointed out, you're not going to find a more cosmopolitan game about the Renaissance than Pax Renaissance. It really is a sort of global view of what was going on. And if you're willing to abstract away some of the weird ahistorical stuff that, that Phil Eklund wanted to smuggle in, I think that you can still enjoy the game as it is because a lot of his dodgy views are buried in the, the rule book, and you don't need to accept those conceits when you're actually playing the game. So I don't, I don't know where I stand on Pax Renaissance right now, actually. I want to play it another couple times with people who are really interested in exploring some of the systems. I'm actually going to be talking about Pax Renaissance a little bit later when we start talking about mastering games, because I think it's a really good test case. But I was, I, was, I was really impressed with my last play. Not just because it was so much better than my previous plays, but it was also just really impressive on its own terms. So if this is what people have been talking about when they've been talking about Pax Renaissance, and if I'm able to consistently get that kind of enjoyment from the game, then I very much look forward to my future experiences with it. But who knows? Maybe this was just an aberration. Again, maybe this was because of the company I was having and or the mood that we were having. It's one of those tricky situations where was I wrong before? Was I wrong this time? I'm going to need more data to figure out for sure. So that is my current confused thinking on Pax Renaissance. And those were the games we played last week. On to the news and why it doesn't matter. Walker, what do you got for news for us? Um... I see they want to spread around the pain, Mark. <laughs> You're going to be a little more specific. App- apparently, subjecting five people to love letter was not enough. Now they're going to have a six-player love letter so you can inflict suffering upon six people at the same time. Thank God for that. Because I know, I, I think, you know, my letter sending, like I said, about four emails a day asking for the six-player love letter, and it's, I think it's finally paid off. Thank God it's coming, and I'm so looking forward to it. Are they going to release separate expansion packs for every version of letter, love letter? Because oh. now we need six-player Batman love letter. We're going to need six-player... Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings love letter. I, I, I don't know. They've licensed it for so many different things. Are we going to get the six-player version for all of them? I hope so, You know, because I have them all, so I'd, I'd, I'd really like to have you know the six-player version of each one. Yeah, you need to get another expansion for each version now, otherwise your collection will be incomplete. Exactly. The kids will laugh at you, Walker. It's so true. Do you have any actual news, Mark? (laughs) (laughs) So it's all... Infinity all the time for me this week. Uh, there's the company behind Infinity, Corvus Belly, has announced they're going to be making a third game, namely Defiance, which is going to be a co-op dungeon crawl. Not that we need more of those... But as I say, one of the virtues of the Infinity universe is that it tends to be a very cosmopolitan view of the universe. It, it, it poses a, a, an interesting question, though, that I often find. Is it better for a game to have no women or 
all sexually objectified women. Because those are basically your options when it comes to tabletop miniatures game. You can have a Games Workshop product where the future is universally male and white, or you can go to something like Infinity where it consists of people of lots of different ethnic and cultural backgrounds, and all the women are presented as hypersexualized babes, or at least almost all of them. There are some exceptions. You know, all, all told, I'll probably lean towards the latter. I, I, this is not about Defiance in particular. This is true about Aristea. This is true about Infinity as well. That's one of those uh, one of those enduring questions. I, I would like to point out, though, in the context of Defiance uh, specifically and in games generally, and if, if Corvus Belli is still sculpting any of these things, uh, a woman in power armor is going to look exactly like a man in power armor. That is just the way things are. Uh, it is not the case that the men... Because in Infinity, heavy infantry, are, men are these you know, relatively hunking, broad-shouldered things in, in, in robot suits, and the women look like they're wearing some kind of... But you wouldn't be able to tell they're women if they weren't... God, Mark, don't you know anything? Yeah, I, I'm, just, I'm just saying that uh, power armor with, with giant honking bazoongas is not exactly my vision of the future. But anyhow, setting all that aside, uh, as, as a result, actually, what I do is I aggressively, uh, in my, in my headcanon, I refer to all my uh, heavy infantry units. I only have the, um, the, the, the quote-unquote male sculpts, and I refer to all of them as women when moving them around. There you and go. I, I, Anyhow, so Defiance is uh, coming from Corvus Belli, and uh, I'm probably, look, I, I shouldn't, I should stop playing dungeon crawls. I should stop getting them. But I really like Corvus Belli and what they do with yeah. their things, so I'm probably going to try Defiance. I'm so done with buckets of plastic. Ah, but these are going to be metal miniatures, oh, Walker, which will triple the price. <laughs> I don't know why I'm just done with it. I'm just so done. Maybe because it was like after watching them sail across the room. By the way, if anyone's not seen my unboxing of Batman Gotham, they really should watch it. It was quite spectacular. One word. Bam. Bam. All right. So anyway, on to uh, We Hate Dexterity Games. And, <laughs> and let me tell you. We the, also like to lie. The, the two hours it took to pick up all those figures and place them all back in their little tray was a fantastic dexterity game. Not every task involving manual labor is a dexterity game. But WizKids has announced the first Star Trek flicking dexterity game. Do you want to know its name, Mark? Conflict in the Neutral Zone. Yes. We've talked about this Have before. We? Oh, well, man, I totally missed it because that <laughs> name is amazing. It is, it is great. I'm, rem- I'm reminded of our first enthusiasm over SEAL Team Flicks. Yes. You know, a dexterity game involving some strategic elements and a stupid pun. We're there. We're that's, that's three things we love. I can't, I don't remember ever talking about it. I'm sorry, I'm bringing it up again then. You, no, I'm that's not fine. excited about it. It, it, bears, it bears repeating. Then on to other news then is Flotilla. Also by WizKids. It's just the art in this is very, it's very much water world, apocalyptic. You're building this floating city out in the middle of the water. I'm hoping that it's, you know, what I think it's going to be right now. I just have the box cover art, but it interests me. So I'm going to talk about it. Thank goodness that Zev Schlesinger is now at the helm I of know, right? WizKids because they're doing some really interesting stuff. Yeah. I, Not everything's been good, but they're going after some interesting properties, which right. is wonderful. Last bit of news I have is there's a mild kerfuffle going on in the wargaming fora of BoardGameGeek about Scramble for Africa. Long story short, there was a game on GMT's P500 pre-order program that had about 200 orders called Scramble for Africa. And it, in its description and in various material for the game, it talked about basically colonial powers gleefully exploiting Africa for their own glory. Their words, you know, words like exploitation and for the glory of the, of, of the empire. And I'm not of the opinion that games like that shouldn't be made. I probably won't play them. You know, it's the difference between Endeavor, which deals with colonialism and slavery in a very intelligent, thoughtful, and detailed, interesting, and historical way, instead of just 
you know, if anything, the sort of ahistorical weird Euro takes on colonialism that you would expect a company like GMT not to engage in. But anyway, that, that was the sort of vision. And it was those kinds of reasons why Gene Billingsley decided to pull Scramble for Africa from P500. He basically said, look, this isn't a good look for us. We'd rather not publish it. Uh, you know, no harm, no foul. And this has led uh, war gamers who are, generally speaking, a very sensitive bunch. They are, after all, called grognard, which means complainer to talk about censorship and how GMT is a bad company and how if only the free market could have could have resolved this. Like, guys, guys, let me let me explain something to you very well, people, I should say. That's how the free market works. If a company doesn't want to publish something because they think it's a bad look, that's the free market. If the publisher then go publishes it somewhere else or on Kickstarter, that's also the free market. Censorship is not GMT deciding that they don't want to bring this thing to market. All right? So calm down. If you really wanted the game and are disappointed because it's not going to be available, that's fine. I sympathize with you even because lots of games that I wanted to hit the market don't. But this isn't censorship. This isn't GMT going to hell in a handbasket. This isn't social justice warriors corrupting your hobby. This is the free market in operation. Deal with it. Calm down. And you're probably still going to get your game after all because as a result of this publicity, someone else will probably pick it up or it'll be crowdfunded. Take 20% off the top. Write, Write a letter. Dial it in there, Super Chief. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On now to our feature game, which is Catacombs 3rd Edition by Ryan Amos, Mark Kelsey, and Aaron West, published by Elzrin. Just a minor editorial note, one of the reasons why we're reviewing this game is because one of the publishers reached out and asked us to do so. That having been said, we reviewed this on retail copies that we purchased ourselves. Now, before we get into the 3rd Edition, allow me to spend a little bit of time talking about the 1st and 2nd Editions. The 1st Edition was published in 2010, and... It was very different from the third edition in a number of ways. Specifically, it looked entirely different. All the art was different. A lot of the components were very different, although the the key conceit remained the same, which was bad D&D done as a dexterity game. And by bad D&D, I'm referring to the theme, the theme of murder hobos kicking down a door, killing a whole bunch of things, and taking their stuff. Now, in 2010, it's important to note that this actually predates a lot of the other sort of hybrid dexterity games uh, that we now take for granted in the market. So prior to 2010, we did have Tactica, which was published in 2007, which is a game I still haven't played and desperately wish to, which is sort of a two-player skirmish game as presented by Flicking. But it predates Ascending Empires, which is the 4X game where you move your starships by flicking in 2011. And it even predates some of the more simpler disc fighting games like Disc Duelers, which is relatively obscure, but I think pretty good representative uh, uh, of the genre in 2013. And we, as previously mentioned, love dexterity games. And this was an attempt to take a relatively staid format, namely the bad D&D dungeon crawl, and present it entirely in dexterity. So, Walker, why don't you give us a sort of unhelpful didn't, summary? Didn't you just do that? Like, seriously? Well, you be, yours are always funnier than mine. Oh, there you go. Well, Crokono merged with bad D&D. Oh, wait, you just said that. Oh, geez. Well, in this one, you have all sorts of monsters, all sorts of different characters to choose. It's good fun. It's uh, definitely a family game. Lots of laughter. You know, flicking a skeleton across or shooting a bow and arrow, knocking, you know, the skeleton off the table is always a great fun the new art is fantastic, but more on that later. And that is uh, that is uh, Catacombs. So, yeah, why don't we talk about the, you know, the core gameplay. Whenever something activates, whether it's a hero or whether it's a monster, more on that, that fundamental structure later, it basically can follow a line of instructions about what it's allowed to do. And fundamentally, there are a small number of different types of flicks, and they do various types of things when they hit somebody, ranging from absolutely nothing to instant death in the case of, of petrification. And the core gameplay, just let me 
come out and say right away is wonderful. I love flicking things. Flicking things is fun. I'm not very good at it, but the core element is still a joy, and it is nice to be able to try to hit something with your thing. Exactly. I, that's, I have only two things in the good column, and that is one. Dexterity game, great fun. And the and the second thing is the art. The first edition, it was just all black and white pencil art. In this new edition, it's very cartoony, very fantastic, makes it more fun, more family-friendly. And like you said, there's just something about, you know, knocking someone's piece into Tomorrowland. It's it's a it's a great feeling. So the new edition's artist is Quan Chai Moria, who first uh, I, I first uh, paid attention to him in 2009 when he did a redesign of Ogre, the Steve Jackson classic, which was later pulled due to uh, IP constraints. But that was the first time I'd ever seen his art. And now he's a relatively established graphic designer and artist for board games. He's done everything for Catacombs 3rd Edition. He's done some work on Dinosaur Island. He did all the art for Flip Ships. He's got a very, very distinctive visual style, and I think it's great. But I don't just want to focus on how attractive his artwork, because another big thing that changed from the 1st and 2nd edition to the 3rd is that the 3rd edition is so much more usable. Just the, there are some exceptions and some things where you have to, you know, check back to the rulebook, but that's largely because of the variety of effects that, that, that might occur. But the, the core iconography and instructions about how to follow someone's basic turn, vastly more usable in the third edition than the first and second. I actually, having played both editions, I was shocked at how much more fun I had with the third edition over first and second, because I just thought, oh, well, it's just a, gra- it's just a new coat of, coat of paint. But it really isn't. It's just so much more accessible and fun than the previous editions because it gets out of your way more often. So uh, I'd actually like to uh, pick up, you know, in in terms of time and number of details, we're going to spend a lot more time, I think, on the negatives than the positives. But let me just emphasize how much fun it is to flick things and other things. Yes. One one thing, just minor thing, I don't like how much time you spend actually replacing discs that go out of bounds. You're a very, uh, what's the word here, vigorous flicker, uh, as is evidenced for your unboxing videos. And very frequently when you hit something, they will go flying. Now, Pro in Catacombs 3rd Edition, it comes with these lovely walls that prevent things from flying off the table. Yet another massive usability improvement from 3rd Edition over the previous ones. But you spend so much time and so often just repositioning things so they go back to the edge. And I much prefer it when there's some, you know, actual consequence and you have a reason to keep things on the table. Like, for example, in Disc Duelers, if you send your person off the table, you, it costs you something. You know, you'll, you'll take some damage and it will, it, will, it will negatively impact your turn. In Ascending Empires, similarly, your ship is going to have bad things happen to it, but if you do it to somebody else's ship, it won't do anything bad to them. Uh, but in uh, Catacombs, it just seems like so much of the time, you're just like, okay, well, if it re-enters the edge of the board, re-enters the edge of the board. I'm not a huge fan of that part. It could be just for playability. Some people are just not great flickers, which I'm going to talk about later, and it's probably just a lot easier for them to do it however they want and not give them any penalty. Otherwise, it would get even worse for them. Fair enough. Which I'm going to segue into my uh, first bad point, where is if you're not good at flicking, then you're going to have an awful two hours of pain and suffering. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, whether it's two hours, though, we can return to in just a moment. Yeah, it's... Unlike a lot of these other, what, I, what I'm kind of tentatively calling hybrid dexterity games, in Ascending Empires, uh, if you're bad at flicking, there are techs you can invent to sort of compensate for that. There's no way to get around it. You're still going to be flicking, but there are things you can do. In Catacombs 3rd Edition, all you do is flick. You have some strategic choices about when to use various resources, but those resources in turn often force you to flick anyway. So if that isn't your bag, there's nothing here to compensate for you. Let's go back to what we just talked about way too long. Way too long. Like, we played it again last night, and we heavily modify it to, like, 
play half the time, if not quarter of the time, and we think that's the, exactly as much time as it needs. Like there's all, flicking is fun, but you know there's only so much you can do before it, you know gets samey or it's like okay I'm just doing the same thing over and over again or it just doesn't seem two hours is too long. Yes, especially since, again, there's not much variety in terms of the actual activity that you're doing. Yes, you'll be having different kinds of flicks, but you're just flicking. Compared to, say, again, Sending Empires or, of course, the only game that matters, Seal Team Flicks. I can't believe we've gone this far into the review without my mentioning it. Seal Team Flicks, you have to care about tactical positioning. You have to care about a lot of other things beyond just flicking. So let's get into the structure because I think a lot of my negatives are are precisely about the structure of Catacombs 3rd Edition. You're going to be having five rooms which is to say four rooms with some special events sprinkled in, which don't take a whole lot of time, and then the boss fight. Number one, it is far too long. Most of the games of Catacombs that I've played have been in excess of two hours, some of them even pushing close to three, which is a lot for almost anything, but especially when all you're doing is flicking. And making this worse, as far as I'm concerned, is that mostly the structure of the game is that the first few rooms don't matter because all that it amounts to is acquiring some small number of items and then healing up for the boss fight anyway, because the entire game is determined by the boss fight. So it has this sort of siege feeling of, of gradually, we- gradually wearing people down ver- over a protracted period of time, culminating in the boss fight, which is the only thing that matters anyway. I would love a redesigned version of Catacombs where they managed to include all those other elements, like gear, like paying for healing and all that stuff, but just in the one board. That, I think, would be a very interesting way to do it. Now, there's a, there's a, a sort of beginner version, Catacombs Conquest, which goes some distance towards doing that, but mostly by stripping things out. I feel, like we said, it's a, also a developer's nightmare, just because all you are doing is flicking, and then they've tried to add all this extra stuff in that just seems to prolong the game and make it more confusing than it needs to be because when you get down to it all you're doing is flicking if they sort of you know focused more in on that it would be a much nicer experience so can we talk about the the one v all nature of it now yes the one v all yes so in catacombs one player is going to be the overlord who controls all the monsters and then there is going to be some number of players controlling heroes now the first thing i'd like to 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 ask you walker is what is your preferred player count for a game of catacombs uh, two or four. So with four, you have an overlord and then three people controlling four heroes. Correct. So who gets the who gets the odd hero? Because in other, I mean, in other co-op games or another one v all games. Sorry, you... I meant like four heroes. Ah, sorry. So four players and one overlord. I see. I see. Especially I see. if it's their first play. But if it's if people have if everyone's played before, then I prefer three people, one overlord, and two hero players. Played it at all player counts, actually. And I'm not sure that there's one that I can point to and say that's definitely the best way. Uh, Probably three players is the best. But the problem is if you play with two players, one overlord, one player controlling the heroes, then you're managing four heroes. And it's not that the cognitive load is too much. It just uh, seems like a little bit too involved. On the other hand, if you play with five players, you're only controlling one hero. That's not enough to do. And heaven forfend if you're playing with four, because then you have four heroes to divide up against three people. Normally in co-ops, for example, like Agents of Smog, you can have that last character be controlled by committee, and that's kind of okay. I'm not a huge fan of that, but when it's a flicking game, someone's got to take the shot. So that's one element. The the player count is a little less flexible than I would like it to be. The other thing is that, and another problem that's endemic to a lot of 1VL games, is I find that the balance is borderline non-existent that's what i have as my last point as well just 
we played with some of the characters last night and they just seemed, you know, so ridiculously overpowered than when compared to other characters that just seemed like we didn't understand what they were thinking or what they were going for or multiple looks in the rule book to say, you know, is this actually what they meant? And it, it was, so it just seemed odd. There have been a t- bunch of expansions and specifically the characters in, and I'm not a huge fan of the title, Chicks at a Dungeon, are so much better than the base game characters. It's It's ridiculous. You can end up in a situation where one player gets to do a whole bunch of cool stuff and someone else might be struggling just to keep up, even if they're of comparable skill levels. And that's even ignoring the fact that there's player elimination. That strictly speaking, you can play in one of two ways, either with death, character death or not character death, but in either way you can get knocked out of a room and be done for upwards of 20% of a given game or longer. And that, that I'm not cool with. It just leads to situations where there's negative player experiences. And this to say nothing of the overall overseer versus hero balance because the bosses and the boss rooms are ridiculous. Again, leading into that feeling that the previous rooms were not relevant because you were piddling around with like, oh, here are five skeleton warriors. And now suddenly in the boss room, there's this boss that stuns you and then steals your health and then stuns somebody else. And this other person steals health from somebody else. Again, leading the sort of tit for tat, well, I do a point of damage to you, but I wasn't able to finish you off. Oh, okay, well, I'll steal the life back. So nothing you did mattered. And I'm going to stun you. And everybody's favorite game mechanism, skip a turn. Yes, when you're stunned, all you can do is move and not do any damage, and then you can get stunned again on the next turn, and then you can do that whole level not actually doing anything. Which is very much in the Overseer's interest. Especially, as, as, especially if it's an overpowered character. You're going to stun that character and make sure that you know they're out for the whole mission. Absolutely. And this, I'm actually going to quote the rulebook here, because I don't know that the designers had a very clear vision of what they wanted the Overlord to do. Because all things being equal, in a game of this structure, I assume that the Overlord's job is to play as competitively as they can, you know, pursue their their own interest. This is a bigger topic, but broadly construed, we've touched on this before, and in a competitive environment such as this, of course there are unwritten social rules that everyone has to follow in order to make sure everyone's having fun. Absolutely, 100%. But within those constraints, you expect that everyone pursuing their own self-interest leads to a fun game, right? Right. In the context of Catacombs, I'm not 100% sure that the designers felt that way. And because they they say things like this. So again, these are quotes from the rulebook. Quote, Catacombs is a cooperative game with the heroes working together as a team and the overlord ensuring that the game runs smoothly and is a fun experience for all players. End quote. Well, that makes the overlord sound like they're a dungeon master, not an active competitive player. Is that a distinction that makes sense to you? It does. And I, I play that way almost in every game, even, you know, Star Wars, Imperial, Imperial Assault, Assault, anything like that. Anything where I'm an overlord, I always pull back if I feel as though I'm, you know, destroying them or it's one-sided. I, I always try to manipulate it so everyone's having fun. I respect that impulse. And I think it does you credit and I think it leads to better sessions. I don't know if it's a reasonable expectation that a game can put on people. And no, that, uh, for sure. You know, that's the, it's the designer's job to make the game balanced off uh, out of the book, right? It's right. not. It's you know because it's not everybody that's going to do that, and it's not their job in, in order to do that. So yeah. they have to make it that way out of the box for sure. This actually is is put more starkly in uh, a, a second quote that I've got written down here. Immediately following closely on the heels of that quote, the overseer sets the pace and tone of the game. Although he or she is trying to win by defeating all the heroes. The overseer will want to make the game enjoyable for the other players as well, end quote. I li- maybe this is just a mental block that I have. I literally can't parse the sentence. I sincerely don't know what that sentence is, is meaning to imply for us. I, I really don't. So is the overseer trying to win 
or is the overseer trying to make sure that it's a satisfying game experience? Because sometimes that's compatible and sometimes it's not. Does that mean that in the case where your boss can stun people and we know that stunning is unfun, especially if you're playing so that everybody only has one hero each, that they deliberately miss? Is that the implication? Stun somebody else instead. I guess. Like, just spread out the stunning? In which case, they're not trying to win. So I don't don't know exactly what they expect to do. When I play as the overseer, I try to be considerate of people's experiences, but, you know, at the end of the day, I have to decide whether it's a competitive or a cooperative experience. And... I've, I've done it both ways. You know, I'm a game master. I'm here to make sure that everybody has fun. But then I don't feel like I'm playing competitively. And when I'm co- playing competitively, I don't feel like I'm a game master. So it, it, it's an awkward neither hide nor hair situation. I'm wondering if the rule book's geared just more to family play. You know what I mean? It's like a family experience. You know, the families, you know, you want to make sure all the children are having a good time. And feel as though when they do win, it's rewarding that they actually had a competitive go at it. Sure. So would you, would you play? Have you played catacombs with children? No. Would you? Yes, for sure. 100%. Okay. Probably as, probably as a hero, I imagine. And Yes. Oh, yeah. I'd make the Unless, you know, they were insistent on playing the evil player, then they could go ahead and play the evil player. And I would probably, you know, hopefully have enough players that I could just sit back and coach them playing the evil player. So, you know, and then, you know, they can go, go at it because children have fun in flicking games. That is for sure. Sure. Honestly, though... Uh... Again, I, I'm, I'm no expert when it comes to children's games or, or what games to play with children. But I would probably, when playing with children, play some of the other dexterity games that I prefer, specifically in the context of flicking, right? I mean, I'm not going to compare Catacombs to, say, Rhino Hero. They're very, very different games or Junk Art. I, would, I think I'd rather play Crokinole with, with a child than something like Catacombs. I'd rather play Disc Duelers. I'd rather play Seal Team Flicks. True. And I have played Seal Team Flicks with children, especially since you can... You know, have the to give them broad brushes about what the AI is going to do. It's like, look, bad guys are going to come and they're going to try to shoot at us. Be careful about bad guys. You know, children can understand that part. And it's never a child is never too young to learn how to violently impose American military policy around the world. Exactly. To know exactly the devastating power of an AK-47 and what it would do to a soldier. It's they, educational. They need to know these things. Absolutely. But like you said, I would not. I wouldn't make Catacombs a child's first board game experience. Or if I did, I would, like, you know, bring it down just one room, you know, heroes, all they do is melee attacks and monsters, all they do is melee attacks and make it a crokinole game. But with, you know, with characters as opposed to just, you know, mindless wooden discs. Yeah. Room by room, turn by turn, well, most turns. I really like Catacombs 3rd Edition. I think it's it's got a lot going for it. It's charming. It's got a variety of effects. And many of the effects are fun and diverse without overloading the system. Although many expansions do overload the system. The moment you start getting into template weapons and stuff like that, I, I, I tend to, to zone out a little bit. But under the weight of its own system, when it's encumbered by the fact that it's 1v all, which makes the player count awkward and the balance is suspect and the, what the overlord is trying to do is weird and the fact that it's just grinding room after room after room attritional stuff, if, if we could get like for solid two-room catacomb scenarios, but at that point I start worrying that the system might be Again, a little bit overloaded for what it's trying to do. I really enjoy bits of it, but as a total package, I feel like it's less than the sum of its parts. True. All this being said, all of these bad points that you went through, I knew about all of these bad points. I already had first edition, yet I still went for the all-in third edition. I even have ordered the play mats, you know, to get even more stuff. I would never get rid of catacombs. I love it, and uh, 
I'm looking forward to playing it again. I w- am willing to play it, and I'd be keen to play it when Mike Walker is serving as the game master. And by that I mean Walker is going to curate the monster selection. Walker is going to curate the hero selection. Walker is going to curate the number of scenarios we do in the different rooms we have. And then Walker should probably also be the game master. Absent these elements, without a strong hand at the till, with the rules as written, I don't think the Catacombs comes together as a compelling package. And I would infinitely prefer Crokinola, Sending Empires, Dixed Coolers, and Steel Team Flicks. Agreed. But having it all pre-set up, I think, is the only way to go. Having having letting people pick the characters will lead to a terrible experience for sure. There are there's also other let's just go over the there's other modes you can play in catacombs. We'd be amiss not to mention them, even though we have not played them nor will we have any opinions on them. There's a team mode where you actually both teams will play hero type characters and they'll do like a PvP type thing. And then there's a boss mode where everyone goes against one big boss. No idea how they play, but I'm yeah, sure they're fun. There are a billion expansions, but again, I think you've uh, your your impulse has been a good one. Mostly when we play, it's been about the core content with maybe a couple of extra expansion bits. Because the moment you start throwing everything into the package, I, from my perspective, it's very much an instance of that game where you, where, as you say, you open up the box, look at everything, you don't know where to begin, close the box, play something else. Exactly. But I do love the visual variety. I do love the visual appeal. I like what they've done with the product line in theory. But again. It just doesn't go here in a way that I really wanted. True, and I really like how they've incorporated some of the flicking things with the way, like the you know, the, the the blob and the cube, and just some way some of the attacks sort of you know uh, are incorporated into the type of attack it is. I thought they did some of them are very interesting. Yeah, some of the some of the uh, uh, bits are are really cute, but again, even when those are happening, I sometimes feel like it's working against itself. Like you can get swallowed by somebody. There's, there are these massive creatures that will swallow you whole. And while you're swallowed, you don't get a turn, which, you know, is kind of one step forward, two steps, two, two steps back situation. And we didn't even cover that. There's another whole expansion where you get to ride wyverns around right. and you got to knock people off of them. And it's just like, oh, another whole other th- level. It's just like enough. It's a flicking game. Try to, you know, to- you know, bring it to – this is the key of the game is the flicking. You really need to concentrate on that and try to, you know, fade out this other stuff in our humble opinion. Absolutely. That is Catacombs by Ilzra Games. So our topic this week is mastering a game. And by this, what we mean to say is, is it a good idea or is it desirable? Or what are the benefits and downsides to a group really committing themselves to playing the same game over and over in an attempt to develop proficiency at that game? Walker, what are your thoughts on I'm just saying I've been on a quest for quite a while to find the game that our group can, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, embrace. As their group game, I thought uh, Gaia Project would be it, but no one else seems to like it. I thought Lisboa was going to be it, but it's not actually a game. That was unfortunate. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that it's it's just sort of that one game that I I would like us all to enjoy, all to play, where you can have this discussion about it afterwards and. Even when you're not playing it, you sort of like discuss the next strategy you're going to have and you, you, know, you like how this worked and stuff like that. And we'll go over some of these points later. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about a game to master. So first of all, I'd like to point out that I think that locally there are two games that fit the bill that have been played over and over and over again for several months now, even just in the, in the recent past. One of them being Great Western Trail and the other being Brass Birmingham. Correct. Now, one of those two you don't really like very much. Brass didn't grab you which is an indication of your fine and upstanding status well, as a you, person Mark. of good taste. But I know that you like Great Western Trail, and you haven't really been diving into, you know, the table that reliably will play Great Western Trail every time, all the time. 
Well, it's because I always fall into the same category when I play Great Western Trail. I have great plans at the beginning, and then I completely ignore those plans and do something else, and then realize I had this plan and try to get back to that plan, and then it's too late, and then the game's over, and I have a terrible score. <laughs> now, is this in the sense of you falling into old habits or just in the sense of not sticking to a plan at the outset of the game? I think it's just not sticking to a plan. It's it's it's, it's the, you know, low low attention span. It's like, ooh, there's a piece of candy and, you know, it's like, I, oh, I, should, I should do that. That seems pretty good. <laughs> and then you get off on a, you know, a, the wrong tangent and then you're behind and it's all over. Oh, that's how I always play Warpgate, actually. <laughs> I've been playing Warpgate for, for years and I always end up midway through the game looking at the map saying, how did I mess everything up so badly? But, but coming back to the point, it's interesting. I ask because... I, I find myself in a relatively strange position, and this is just a personal quirk. I really like games where there are lots and lots of different avenues to explore. For example, just to pick two very different games as examples, Too Many Bones and A Feast for Odin. You can approach those games with radically different perspectives and radically different builds and emphasize different kinds of strategies. And I appreciate that the game has those, and I love watching other people exploit them. But I always do the same thing over and over and over again. And I don't mind doing that. I find it pleasant. That's just my natural conservatism, I think. And so it's, it's, it's a bizarre situation, and I don't know if anyone else is like that, where they like it that the games are that open, but they're still happy to pursue the same thing over and over again. Well, it's, that's what I have as one of my points, is that uh, if the game only has a single path, then it, only be, it just becomes a race every time that you play it. You know, it's whoever can get there the fastest. Whereas, like you said, if there's multiple ways you can do it, then that's a far better way to do it. Even though, like you said, some people just keep doing the same thing over and over again and thinking that this time, Jade will win. <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about the kind of games that you're thinking about then. Because I have some games written down here that could be amenable to this level of mastery. And then we can talk about the, you know, the benefits and downsides of, of, of approaching things in that way. Gotcha. So what kind of games? Do, so you mentioned Gaia Project already. Gaia Project, Marco Polo. Great Western Trail, we already talked about. The, all of these games fit into that category. Tigris and Euphrates, I think also, like, deep strategy games like that also will fit into that category. Even though there's, like, you know, it's not really different paths to glory. They don't, Tigris and Euphrates doesn't play out like the, these other games will, but there's a deep chess-like strategy there that can be employed and talked about in Tigers and Euphrates. Absolutely. As, as we talked about in our review of Tigers and Euphrates, that's one of the reasons why it's, you know, a past master design of a past master designer it's not that there are a billion different tracks or strategies to pursue. It's just that you have to be able to visualize the board and anticipate what's going to be happening. Uh, so in, in the sense of multiple paths to victory, by one sense it doesn't really have multiple paths to victory, but in another sense it has an infinite number. So in addition to the kind of, uh, of Euros that we're talking about here, most of the splatter games, for example, I would add in that category, uh, the, a lot of your, your more uh, robust Uwe Rosenbergs, definitely uh, Caverna, Agricola, Feast for Odin, you know, pick your poison. Even La Havre a bit, but I, I, I think that La Havre actually is, is, is more narrow than it's given credit for. Um, designs of Alexander Pfister, I think. Great Western Trail is one of them, but Mombasa and a lot of his other stuff, I think, is amenable to that kind of thing. And that's because, yeah, you could choose to pursue a different kind of strategy. And Food Chain Magnet is another great example of a game where you can choose to pursue any number of different avenues. And I love watching other people do it. And I'm just stuck with my same old patterns and enjoying it every time, despite that. But then there are the other ones, the sort of more Ameritrash, fighty types of, of skirmishy games that I also uh, want to uh, mention briefly, precisely because I think that in order to play them even properly, 
you have to devote yourself at least a little bit to some degree of mastery. So I talked a little bit about Pax Renaissance before, and it's not really an Ameritrash game, but it has that kind of detail, that kind of grit, that kind of chaos, whereby it's not that you can play very, very different ways each time, although that's true, but it's just in order to understand even what's going on, in order to play competently, you might need more than one play just to get going. Whereas I think you can play semi-competently A Feast for Odin or even Food Chain Magnet on your first play if, if, if you're particularly good at those things. You're probably not going to win, but you're not going to be flailing around like a monkey in all likelihood. You can go and build your tiny little engine and do your little thing. I don't even know that that's true of Pax Renaissance in your first play for a lot of people. Uh, the same is true of lots of skirmish games that are so dense that your first play, you're probably not even going to be using all your abilities properly. You know, I think back of our games of Mythic Battles Pantheon, which we haven't played in a while. Again, we don't really have much time for two-player games. But it's a bit of a shame because each unit has so many abilities that we often just forgot to apply half of them if we weren't being familiar with the rules. And I really do think that in an environment where you can play the same game over and over, that's where you'd really see that come to the fore. For some reason, I I have a big distinction between these two things. Mm -hmm. I think one is getting very good at a game when there is randomness involved, like skirmish games, like combat games, like anything that has any randomness in it where you're rolling dice, then you can just become good at it because there's ways to litigate the the dice rolling and stuff like that. Whereas no luck games, I, I would rather put a, a mastery word on that as opposed to I don't, in my head, I have, I just, I have a, a distinction between those two. I respect that, but I, I, I'd like to point out that some games uh, appear more random than others. Like, so let's just take, uh, for, for example, uh, a game like Earth Reborn. I don't know if you've played Earth Reborn. Once, I believe. This is by, again, Earth Reborn is the kind of game that you can't really play properly if you just play it once. It's got so many subsystems. Uh, they're even kind of interesting, but, and the, the, the sort of full game, it's got a whole bunch of scenarios, but the full game is the, uh, the, the sort of random scenario generator system, which has so many different possible permutations, combinations of, of things going on. It really does start to melt the brain. And I always wished I was in an environment where there were people who'd be willing to, you know, put in the necessary effort to really internalize how it works just to see the system in its full fruition and see if it's if, if, if it shines. Earth Reborn, by the way, was done by uh, Christophe Belanger, who's done lots of really interesting stuff. He designed Archipelago as well as Dungeon Twister, as well as Earth Reborn. But, I, but if, you take, if you take a game like Earth Reborn, which has dice and which has random card draws, I don't know that that randomness precludes the kind of system mastery that we're talking about, precisely because you need to be able to understand how a variety of systems work together and how you can just manipulate the state of play. I don't know if, certainly, the more randomness the game has, it it requires a different kind of mastery. I wouldn't apply this kind of thing to uh, something like Battle Lore, for example. Battle Lore has has a degree of randomness that I think precludes this kind of mastery. But I I wouldn't necessarily throw all of them out in the same category. No, but I mean, I I have a distinction in my mind that, you know, that there is sort of a difference between these two things. That's fair. Let's go over some points. Good points about you know, uh, including this in your group would be that games are much faster. Everyone knows the rules. You don't need a rules explanation. You're going to fly through these games much faster. Makes uh, expansions that much more exciting. Because I talked about this earlier, like when games that have been out for a while, the expansion comes out, everyone just, not everyone, I shouldn't say everyone. <laughs> Majority of the market is is waiting for the new newest greatest thing and well the majority, a majority of the market is represented by the hardcore on board game geek true and i feel as though expansions are slowly dropping off because people are only interested in the newest game they don't really care about expansion of these old games but if your group is 
playing this game a lot. When an expansion comes out for it, it'll make it that much more exciting. I agree. And then finding new and interesting ways to play. When you play a game over and over again, there are mechanisms and and things the designer wanted to incorporate that you know work together that you didn't see at first or didn't come out until you played it that many times and discovering these things is fantastic. I agree. It's 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 weird though because part of me thinks that that will be the case and part of me expects that to be the case. But when I think back to some of the games where I've gotten I'm not going to say that I've acquired mastery over anything in my life. Certainly not any any specific game and certainly not at the rate that we go through games on a, on a regular basis. But when I think of the games that I've played with the same people over, say, a dozen times, in games precisely like the ones you're talking about with relatively low randomness, I've seen the opposite effect. I see canned openings. I see rote application of the same early turns. And a lot of people get excited about things like that, about learning canned openings and, 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 and rehearsing responses to those canned openings. And these are people that very much like to play chess, generally speaking. And chess, is, chess to me is more an area of study rather than a game at that point. And this is not a, a hardcore distinction. I'm just trying to draw out a, a, a sort a point, of yeah. a, a, a difference of experience. And the classic example of this for me was definitely when we're getting started in the hobby, Puerto Rico. Because there were people who played Puerto Rico dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And for them, the game practically played itself. And I don't know what enjoyment they got out of that experience. They, they clearly did. I'm I was not- about to say, that's, that's odd that they had to play it multiple times. Because that's what I felt the very first time I played it. I felt as though it was the game that played itself. Because that's what I, that's what, <laughs> sure. what I told people when I, they said, well, what would you think of Puerto Rico? Well, the one time I played it, it played itself. It was the, you know the obvious choice every time. And... Anyway, that's... Well, <laughs> I didn't necessarily get that impression right away. It was actually that impression that was imparted on me by experienced players who would voice their dissatisfaction that I wasn't playing, quote-unquote, properly. Gotcha. Which is to say, by their expectations. But that, that's precisely it. That sense of the game playing itself sometimes creeps in on these lower-luck games where everyone is on the same page. And, and whether it's the game design itself or just the groupthink established by playing with the same people. This environment that you're talking about where a stable group of people plays the same game over and over, and this gives them the freedom to explore weird and wacky stuff, I haven't seen materialize. And I doubt whether you'd be able to find enough like-minded people to play in that way over and over again. I mean, it's certainly possible. I just don't know how likely it is. All right. And my last good point is uh, it becomes a topic of discussion. Like when you are playing another game or when you're out for dinner with your friends or doing, you know, talking on the social medias, it becomes, you know, this cool in-depth, you know, talking about the next game or the past games or what you're going to try next time or what will happen. I'm thinking mostly about when we, when we used to enjoy playing Warhammer Fantasy and you talk about different combos you want to try for the next game or, you know, back when it was fun and it wasn't all about tournaments. Well, this takes me back to things like Mythic Battles Pantheon and tabletop miniatures games, you know. Uh, one of the reasons why I couldn't really get into Malifaux, aside from uh, a couple of weird things about the theming, was, again, you really had to play a whole bunch of times to even get the, the core abilities of your units down. Uh, now, that having been said, Malifaux has been toning down the craziness of the abilities with each subsequent edition and third editions coming out relatively soon. I might cast a glance at it. But Infinity is definitely the game that I think, insofar as mastery exists for games, Infinity is the closest that I've come to for, for mastering a system. And that's precisely the, the kind of variety that I like, being able to try different builds, being able to try different unit compositions, a different selection of troops. 
because yes, very often when it, when it's time to play at a tournament, for example, yeah, I'll resort to what I know works and works successfully, and then I play a very very boring game. I still enjoy it, but you know, on on, on the surface level, it's very boring. But it's really in in more in games with more built in randomness like things like Mythic Battles Pantheon or Infinity that I really like trying wild and wacky crazy stuff because the universe of available builds is so huge that it dwarfs the kind of permutations of anything you might ever see in a game such as Great Western Trail. I'm not knocking the game. I'm just saying that your tools at your disposal are much more limited than in any robust tabletop miniature setting. Agreed. There is one thing, though, I'd like. this actually dovetails very nicely with this idea that you talked about in terms of the conversation that you might have about a game. I very much like talking about games. Really? It, yeah. You sure? Okay. okay. Just let me finish my thought, I'm okay? Sorry. I'm okay? Sorry. Maybe I don't like talking about games with you anymore. I like talking about games in the abstract, but when you start talking about a specific session for too long, I often find that for many people, it starts lapsing into... Yeah, I shouldn't. I should have been more specific. I, okay, elaborate. Where do you ne- think I was going? I almost would never talk about past sessions. Yes, I talk only about future sessions. Why do you not want to talk about past sessions? Because then you get into how great my character is yes. and how great my army list is. Yes, and that is painful and awful. Much of my attitude towards games and talking about games with people face to face that are not you is actually premised on how do I keep this from becoming competitive. How do I keep this from coming? Well, if only this card had come out, then I would have won, or I would have gotten X more points if this thing had happened, or, oh, you took eight points from me from doing this thing. Why did you do this thing? Whatever. And part of that is because I've said this before, and I'll, I'll, I don't know that I've mentioned it on air. I've played games in about five cities in North America. I'm not you know, particularly well-traveled. It's just I, I've had to move for, for a bunch of reasons. And where we are now is by far the most competitive I've ever seen players in terms of how they talk about games and how they react to games, how they care about scores, logging final scores and stuff like that. And part of the reason why I resist moving towards you know, mastery of a certain game or going to that table that plays Great Western Trail every week is not only for other reasons, exogenous reasons, which I'll I'll, I'll bring up in a second, and they're the obvious ones mostly, but it's because I feel that that lends to a certain competitive mindset of I'm acquiring this mastery, and so clearly I want to track how well I'm doing, and I start caring about whether or not I win or lose. That's my least favorite thing about Infinity. My win record, not to brag, my win record in Infinity is really good, but because of that, I have less fun playing because I start worrying about whether or not I'm going to win. I don't like that. That's not how I like to play games. And so even just talking about mastery or talking about honing skills or things like that makes me deeply nervous because it's only a short hop, skip, and a jump there to getting to to that competitive mindset. Does that make sense? Nope, 100%. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. You can't talk about past sessions with some people. It just gets too competitive too quickly, and it's not fun. Yeah, it falls into, look how I destroyed you. Yeah. All right, now into some bad points. Someone new shows up or you lose one of your, your group members and you have to bring someone else new in. You know, they're starting at, you know, phase one while you guys have all, you know, got it on lock and probably not so fun for them. Especially if you start talking about things in terms of an established meta, right? Yes. It's like, oh, that thing you did two, two games ago, I saw you did that even better now or whatever. It might be difficult, if not impossible, to find, like, the same problem I'm having is to find that game that everyone is going to enjoy and want to invest that much time in. It's true. And my last bad point is I'm afraid that people will choose a bad game. (laughs) (laughs) That is a reasonable fear. 
Look, because he, I, I'm I'm I'm, a, I'm scared that people are investing time into terrible games. Sure. And when they could have chosen a better game, that, that would be that would be my best. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> here, here, here's where I am. We we often throw around the words "cult of the new," but for me, it's not so much the cult of the new. I don't think it's more about how. I really like variety in terms of gameplay experiences. And I'm thinking about that not just in terms of the new stuff that I get, but in terms of bringing back to the table these 10, 20-year-old games, of bringing, of you know, trying Intrigue for the first time in my gaming career, even though it was published 25 years ago, of showing new people things like El Grande or In the Shadow of the Emperor or even Hansa Teutonica published 10 years ago, things like that. When I think about the variety that I like in terms of my gaming experiences, I think about it in terms of primarily of just new stuff to me, not necessarily new stuff on the market. And the, the downside of, of mastery is I don't doubt that you can get additional appreciation for some designs. But absent the games that are already in my top 10, or my top 20 maybe, I don't necessarily know that I need to get something else in that heavy rotation when instead I can just, you know, take advantage of this huge available variety of games that I have. I really do enjoy the variety, whether it's a new design or an old design. And so the opportunity cost for me seems higher than the, the, the possible trade-off, especially given how fraught the risks are, as we said, in terms of creating a potentially toxic social dynamic, especially for new players. That's my worry. Maybe I'm just being crazy. Maybe it's because I'm just a superficial dilettante. But hey, I like being a superficial dilettante. I like playing lots and lots and lots of different types of games. Agreed. Well, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3336, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>